Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We're coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, political analyst, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. There's an interesting piece in Astrana News entitled Exchange or Captivity, Why the Azovstal Garrison Decided to Stop Resistance and What Will Happen to It Now. It opens tonight. Ukraine confirmed that the military is leaving the Azovstal plant and headed to territory controlled by the DPR. Russia says the Ukrainian military is laying down their arms and surrendering. However, in Kiev, they try to avoid the word captivity, calling what is happening an evacuation, followed by an exchange for Russian prisoners of war. Language is very important. What does this language really mean? For insight, we turn to our first guest. He's a professor of political science at the University of Rhode Island, specializing in Ukraine and Russia, Professor Nikolai Petro. Professor Petro, welcome back. Hi there, Wilmer. Hello, Garland. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. So uh, let's talk about what's been happening uh, at the steel plant, where we are now, and how important is this language to you? Well, this is the first that I read in the Ukrainian press about uh, the Azov battalion essentially surrendering um, the plant in which um, they were holed up. Uh, They have been holed up since the beginning of hostilities. So this... uh, This is an event that has been much anticipated because once um, this particular garrison falls, if it uh, it is falling, then uh, an estimated 20,000 troops or so can be, would presumably be shifted to the campaign further north, which um, most poli- uh, military analysts seem to agree, uh, is aimed at encircling and uh, then eliminating the remainder of the body of the Ukrainian armed forces in the east. So that's where we are now. People have been asking why that last offensive uh, by Russia uh, was being so long delayed. And I think a lot of it had to do uh, with um, making sure that there was no chance for the Ukrainian armed forces to um, mount uh, some sort of counterattack from Mariupol proper. Let me ask you this. There was a danger, I think, with the Ukrainians in, you know, lionizing the two things and the U.S. both lionizing the Azov Stahl, who are clearly, you know, let's be honest, they're of a very dubious uh, ideology to be kind. But they're I mean, they're, you know, self-avowed neo-Nazis. So in the U.S., the issue of lionizing these people and making them some heroic figures is that you will have people, particularly young people, that could theoretically be attracted 
attracted to that, saying, well, I want to be a hero, and my government's saying these people are heroes. There's the danger of that for the U.S. The danger in the Ukraine is you make these guys to be 10 foot tall. They're your great heroes, and then they just surrender and they give out, you know, they come out, walk out with a white flag. That's something that demoralizes. I mean, the rest of your troops are like, oh, I guess we're done for. They got our best. They gave up. So what do you think of those two various perspectives that I see from from two different points of view? Yeah, well, I I think you've pointed to two issues that always arise with wartime propaganda. Um, one is over uh, overblown expectations, which, by the way, uh, hasn't been not a lot of attention has been drawn to this. But there was an article a few weeks ago, I believe in Newsweek, which. Um, asked uh, a defense intelligence analyst uh, in the defense intelligence uh, agency uh, to talk, to comment about um, the evolution of the military campaign in Ukraine. And he said, we are getting, he was very candid, and he said, um, there's a real disconnect emerging between what uh, professional analysts are seeing and what is being reported in the press in the West. And that's a problem, he said, because um, our own intelligence analyst uh, said we we are raising expectations about events that uh, don't seem to be likely to be fulfilled. And the the question really is, which of these two versions, the rosy version of a Ukrainian victory or the on the ground version which um, looks rather different, which version uh, are our politicians listening to? And uh, if they're listening to the rosier version, then they're basically acting on inaccurate information. And that's a, a, a problem politically for the United States. I'm glad you made that point because that's exactly the next question I had planned to ask you, which is, I have, in, in terms of talking to experts such as yourself and, and the other experts that we have access to, we've, we've been told, one, it's important to understand Russia has not declared war on Ukraine, which means that tactically there's a different approach that's being employed and a different anticipated outcome by the Russian military. The United States makes this appear as though this is an all-out war, and therefore the analysis of reality is different because the expectations that are set are different. So based on that, and, and you know, we keep hearing Ukraine's winning, Ukraine's winning, Ukraine's winning, and the folks we're talking to say, no, th that's not the reality here. And Russia is taking its time. It's being strategic. It's being surgical because it doesn't just want to take over the Ukraine and turn the whole country into rubble. So with all of with those two different perspectives, what's your assessment of where we are right now? Hopefully that wasn't too convoluted. Well, we can't. We uh, again, there is. So much misinformation that I'm starting to tell people that the best thing you can do to understand the situation is not read the news. <laughs> just 
just hear what, what I do is I, I get a lot of sources and I just skim the um, titles to see and look at the actual source uh, where it's published because that will essentially tell you 99 times out of 100 what is going to be in that. So you really need to go to some sort of filter or if you can, go to a variety of sources that um, are available in the world that can be translated or Google translated that don't have any skin in the game. You know, the Latin American sources, African sources, Asian sources, because as many people have argued, and it's hard to disagree with them, this is looking more and more from the West perspective like a proxy war against Russia. And Ukraine is just the, um, the incidental casualty here of this war. From the West strategics, from the West strategic perspective, if if the fighting stops in Ukraine, I can see a lot of people in Washington arguing that that's not good for us. That's not good for America, because it if there's an an actual negotiated settlement, then Russia gets something. Russia Russia would be would be deriving some benefit from this. And that's not our strategic objective here as the Secretary of Defense. Lloyd Austin has said, we require that Russia come out of this uh, experience weaker than it was before. And uh, uh, it's hard to know what the bottom line is here because uh, – what exactly is the – it's unclear to me what exactly the U.S.'s strategic objective is. As, and as in um, – uh, as nonspecific as Russia has been in terms of its long-term objectives, that's understandable because they're actually conducting a military operation. They don't want to give their plans uh, away to the enemy. But as unclear as, as they have been – it is uh, at least, uh, I think, uh, a bit clearer than what uh, the West is trying to achieve in Russia, because there is all the options ranging from, on the one hand, um, some sort of generic weakening to maybe uh, a regime change. And uh, a lot of individual politicians in the West, senators and congressmen, have been talking about that. A couple of things. Uh, There's a fundamental immorality for me to give you a baseball bat and say, beat on Wilmer for a while. And then when you're finished beating on him, then you'll be weaker. Yeah, but that doesn't take into account Wilmer. So the fundamental immorality of throwing the lives, I mean, you know, throwing Ukrainians into a meat grinder so that we can get some as of yet unidentified advantage over Russia and the danger involved, I think, is immeasurable. And here's what else you've got to add. And not just the Ukrainians. As a result of that, we're turning um, Europe's, uh, the same thing that's happening to the Ukrainians on the battlefield is happening to the Europeans economically. Their economy is getting mulched into nothing from economic artillery. So that's the other part of it. We're pretending like we're going to get something out of it, which is as of yet completely, isn't completely, you know, identified. But we're like, sacrificing the Ukrainians 
and the Europeans, it's uh, well, at any rate, your thought on all of that. Well, just I mean, uh, don't forget about our economy, which is is not in rosy shape either. <laughs> and if you look at the trends in terms of just um, non-covered, uh, monetarily uncovered expenditures that we have, which, of course, are the main drivers of the inflation that we're seeing. And that is likely to get worse because we're just spending more and, and more money rather than trying to actually you know, rein in our sense of uh, financial and fiscal responsibility here. Um, uh, we, are paying, we are paying a price. Now, the thing that I'm not clear about but is intriguing to speculate about is how much of this kind of global shift was part of Russia's agenda with this to begin with. In other words, did they, how, how carefully did they think through what the end result would be? As I look at um, the last 10 years, I did a study once for, um, for the U.S. Army on uh, what Russia's strategic objectives were from, uh, based on their official documents. And it's clear that for a long time now, they've been talking about the West basically isolating itself and a major shift coming. And if that was their agenda, then the only issue from Putin's perspective, the Russian government's perspective, was when to strike when to make this move. And I have to think that they calculated their chances uh, well. I would have to agree with that. Professor Nikolai Petro, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that analysis. And we look forward to having you back. Thank you. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. The Hill reports winners and losers from Tuesday's primaries. They write, Tuesday was the most dramatic primary night so far this election cycle. Well, duh. It's close to the first night, <laughs> if, if not the first night of the election cycle. So their ability to overstate the obvious is amazing. For insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's an investigative journalist, commentator, analyst, and author of three books, The Frozen Republic, The Velvet Coup, and America's Undeclared War, Daniel Lazar. As always, Dan, welcome back. Uh, thanks for having me. Before we get to your analysis of the outcome of last night, the Biden administration has put a quote-unquote pause on the Department of Homeland Security's newly created Disinformation Governments Board after its head, Nina Jankowicz, was criticized. Uh, what does—I'm not even going to try to structure a question to lead you in any direction, Daniel Lazar. What does this say to you? Well, it says to me that this, uh, this whole disinformation fad is a complete scam. It's ridiculous. 
I mean, no one knows what disinformation means. Everyone, every, everyone claims to know it when they see it, but everyone disagrees, you know, as to what it really is. Uh, you know, and um, and it's not self-evident. And the idea of a disinformation board in the Department of Homeland Security is, you know, it's it, it's weird. It's vaguely Orwellian. It's silly. It sounds like an attempt at censorship. It's just a really bad idea. And um, I think this whole it sort of, it shows how this whole movement seems to be finally crashing, and none too soon. You know, as we uh, talk about the uh, primaries, I think it's important to read the articles out today about the primaries through the context of the issue of disinformation, misinformation, mal. They're using all they're going dismiss and mal. I don't know what any of them mean, but information is information. To me, it's either true or it's false. But when you read it, it's it's either through the context of Trump won or Trump lost. It's it's not like and then it's like it's so colored to constantly create Overton windows rather than news that says, hey, in North Carolina, these three people lost, these, these three people won. It's all editor, editorialization in the guise of news. Anyway, your thought on that, Dan Lazar? Well, yeah, that, that, I mean, that's how packed journalism works. I mean, there's the, there's the idea of the minute, the, the, the latest fad, and, you, uh, you know, and everyone chases after it. Everyone sort of, like, you know, sort of pounds the same theme. So, so last night, the theme was Trump and... Uh, and um, uh, you know, the uh, steal, the uh, stop the steal. So, but that said, I mean, these are these are important issues, and uh, and I think that they, they they're still interesting. And the then the the primaries told us something. There's a lot of background noise, so we can't be sure exactly what the message was. But it seems to come through that Trump has a lot of influence still. I mean, he uh, you know. Uh, his his candidates did pretty good, not great, but pretty good. His his selection, um, and that the question of the whole stop the steal ideology has become hegemonic. It is the dominant ideology in the Republican Party, which I think itself is very dangerous development. I would I would say one one quick comment. Uh-huh. It mirrors twenty sixteen. It mirrors Trump didn't really want when the Republicans, it was stolen by Russia. You know, to me, both arguments, the argument of 2016 of Russiagate and the of 2020 of whatever stopped this deal are equally absurd. So much so that I feel like this every election from now on, whoever loses, didn't lose. It was another country. It was somebody had ballots in their trunk. It's just shown just another absurdity in, in the United States. Well, I, I totally agree. I mean, I mean, like, like, and 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 either party can only see can only see half the story, you know. So, so, so the Republicans see the absurdity of Trump's stop the steal movement in 2020, and are completely blind to their own party's parallel effort in 2016, which in some ways was even more damaging. I mean, because as you know, I mean, RussiaGate, which was essentially you know grew out of that effort to delegitimize the 2016 election. I mean, that completely consumed and dominated American politics for the following three to four years and nearly and nearly got Trump thrown out of office. So, you know, so I, I, I fully agree that both sides are are incapable of seeing what's going on. And what's going on really is the I mean, the fact that America can't run um, elections that are credible. 
because the electoral apparatus is so antiquated, so broken down, so inefficient um, that no one really believes the outcome. You know, um, India, for example, it, it, it's you know it's a very big country, as you know, um, and they they deliver they deliver ballot boxes by helicopter, elephant camel, et cetera, just in the farther flung portions of the country. Um, the, last, the last general elections, they had to have a stage of them over three days because the effort was so complex. Now, in Indian politics, everything is controversial except for the electoral outcomes because the, the National Election Com- Commission is so highly regarded across the political spectrum that no one questions the results. They are completely uncontroversial. In America, it's exactly the opposite. The system is breaking down. The electoral system is, com- is just in need of a vast overhaul. Um, so, so everyone takes issue with the results. So when I read the analysis of what transpired last night from a number of different sources, a number of them talk about what happened in Pennsylvania is the bellwether of what's to come. Pennsylvania Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman was the clearest winner of the night from his hospital bed. He had a stroke on Friday and a pacemaker device fitted Tuesday. He leans toward the more progressive side of the Democratic Party, so his victory gave the left a much-needed boost. Then... The night's marquee contest, the Republican state primary in Pennsylvania, it's still not decided, but the TV personality Mehmet Oz, who's backed by Trump, and businessman David McCormick are only a hair's breadth apart. So we're supposed to take away from Pennsylvania on the Republican side that the establishment Republicans may actually be regaining control of the Republican Party if Oz loses and progressives in the Democratic Party are gaining traction because Fetterman won and he's a so-called progressive. All of this from Pennsylvania and we're talking about it in a national context? I think that's a stretch. Well, there's there's also this, by the way, there's also Summer Lee, a, uh, a, um, uh, a Bernie Sanders supporter who just won the Democratic primary in the uh, Pennsylvania's 12th uh, congressional district, which is, um, which is in, in Pittsburgh. So that's a big win for the progressive wing of the Democratic Party as well. Uh, I mean, I, I think... The- so then here's the question on, on, the, on the Democrat side. Will, the, will nationally, will Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer listen to the results that, that come out of Pennsylvania, and will they adjust their legislative agenda to reflect it? Or will they do what they've been doing for years and ignore the progressive base of their party and, and not give the people what they actually want? Yeah, I, I mean, it's like, I think it's, I, I, it's, it's, it's the latter. But, you know, but they'll do some, some minor recalibration, right? I mean, they'll, 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 in order to satisfy, satisfy Summer Lee, if she gets, you know, if she, if she gets into Congress, you know, they'll throw a few bones to the squad. The squad will completely capitulate on the, you know, on, 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 on the Ukraine. 
you know, will support 40, you know, $53 billion for, you know, for, for military aid to the Ukraine, which will come straight out of social prog- programs, which the, the squad has, of course, for, uh, fought for. And, I mean, and very Sanders, little of that money will actually make it to the battlefield because the Ukraine is the, has been determined to be the most corrupt country in Europe. I was going to say, if you were going to say in the world, I was going to say second most to the oh. United States. A lot of it won't make it off our shores. It'll end up in Raytheon's bank account. Oh, right. excuse me. Sorry about that. Go, Go ahead, ahead Dan. Dan. No, uh, America is not corrupt because America runs, America determines the corruption rules and therefore <laughs> is very careful to define corruption as something that, that never takes place in America. I mean, no, I mean, Sanders, I mean, Sanders fought his entire life against, against Pentagon bloat. And for, you know, and for and for, you know, for spending more on social programs. So now he's turning around. And what is he doing? He's cutting social programs in order to to foster, you know, Pentagon bloat and to and to, you know, channel aid to some, you know, neo-Nazis who until recently were holed up in the uh, in, uh, in the in the basement of the Ava Steelworks and uh, Azov Steelworks in Mariupol. And the whole thing doesn't make any sense. But nonetheless, getting back to the primaries, I think that the um, that to me Trump still has a great deal of of, of clout, uh, and that the stop the steal ideology is thoroughly dominant in the Republican Party, and that means that uh, that the, the I believe that the Republicans will will take control of both houses in the uh, in the fall, and in September and, and in November 2024. Uh, we're heading for a train wreck of epic proportions. So that's the takeaway. The other thing of it, part of it is, too, if we just word it differently and say the uh, rather than Trump, the Trump movement, the populist right wing populist movement, however you want to, you know, add it, because the truth is, if Trump, you know, disappeared uh, into a into a, a, another realm tomorrow, those people would still be there and that movement would still be there. And that what's going on, I think, two things. When I look at the gas prices, when I look at what people are people are talking about, okay, this this happened yesterday. A summer, we haven't even started the big driving yet. When people are paying, if come November, people are paying seven, eight, nine dollars a gallon. This is is not to even be taken into context of what a summer of super high prices. Diesel fuels at six dollars a gallon here, which means the price of everything goes up. This this isn't even. I can't even take this into context as com- as compared to what it will look like in November if we and we will if we go through a summer of merciless inflation and, 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 and high gas prices, Dan? Oh, I, yeah, I think that people, people will be very upset. I mean, they, I mean all, the, all the indicators are, are pointing us straight down. I mean, inflation is rising. Uh, the Federal Reserve has no – it's going to tighten in response. I mean, you, know, you can't let inflation explode. It's going it's to jack up interest rates to hold down inflation, which is going to tip the country into recession – which is going to make people extremely upset. Uh, Joe Biden's attempt to to to, to blame rising uh, gas prices on, on Putin has completely flopped. So you know, so 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 voters will blame it on uh, on Biden Biden uh, instead. Um, so you know, and and they'll turn increasingly against the war because a it's not their war. 
I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a contest far away. They don't understand. And B, I really believe the message about Nazis is beginning to strike home. So all those things suggest that the, the people will be very unhappy with the direction of the economy, the war, the Democratic Party's leadership, and that should make themselves make itself felt in a big way uh, in November. And to your point about the Nazi message striking home, do you think that the shooting in Buffalo and the shooters' ties to the ideology is driving that message home faster than it would have otherwise? Yes, I think that's starting to resonate. I mean, I mean, I don't know how much the how how. How far that message has gotten? I don't know. You know, is it a few, a few, tw- you know, a few, you know, Twitter users, you know, who are who are sounding off about this, or is it starting to penetrate into the border? All over the the, U- the YouTube uh, world, with people, the YouTubers are all over it. Rockfin, all of that stuff. They're okay. all over that story, okay. Dan. Okay. Well, we got we got to get out. Dan Lazar, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate it, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Biden says white supremacists have replaced jihadists as most lethal terrorist threat to U.S. President Biden labeled terrorism by white supremacists the most lethal terrorist threat to U.S. during his address to a joint session of Congress that was back in April. The Global Times now writes, in the past few decades, neo-Nazism, deeply entangled with populism and racism, has been growing across Eastern Europe, including Ukraine, under the protection of so-called freedom, democracy, and human rights of the West, becoming the poison of society and causing violence, hatred, and turmoil. What are we to make of this, especially in the light of U.S. foreign policy? Let's turn to our next guest. He's the host of Voices with Vision on WPFW 89.3 FM. He's a Pan-Africanist and internationalist organizer and member of the Black Alliance for Peace, Netfa Freeman. As always, Netfa, welcome back. As always, thank you. It's a pleasure. So Biden was in Buffalo yesterday and said, quote, white supremacy it's a poison. It really is running through our body politic, he said, and it's been allowed to fester and grow right in front of our eyes. No more. No more. We need to say as clearly and forcefully as we can that the ideology of white supremacy has no place in America. None. End quote. Netva. Now, that's true. That's true. <laughs> but it shouldn't be about words. It should be about action. If white supremacy is a poison running through our body politic, and it is, then how can Biden back a bill to send $40 billion to a Ukrainian government 
that's polluted with Nazis. If white supremacy is a poison, and it is, how can the U.S.-backed Zionist government in Israel, which former Anglican Archbishop Desmond Tutu and former South African President Nelson Mandela say that it is? It's not what you say. It's about the policies you champion and the bills you back, Net for Freeman. Mm, yeah, but it, it, yeah, it's also about the the ethos and the and the foundations of what America is. So I mean, while I think we have to be careful though to not separate or not uh, think or reduce white supremacy to the more crude, superficial, and overt. Uh, expressions that we see coming out, you know, what Biden's talking about. He wants to reduce that to white supremacy, but not consider white supremacy the very fabric of of United States that sees mass incarceration of non-white people, that sees the depiction of, you know, the the history and everything is, you know, the the, the preeminence of America, and you know, Lincoln is, you know, freed the slaves and he's someone to be honored and all that kind of stuff, and doesn't look at and then also the political imprisonment of our pol- political prisoners and still maligning of them. The, the killing of us indiscriminately by, by police to continue, all that kind of stuff. Then internationally, the supporting of NATO, which is basically a white supremacist, you know, uh, military alliance, the, uh, you know, global military alliance. And so all of these things are white supremacy, too. So we want to and, and because of that, it's no should be no surprise then that the United States, the government and its faction can make common cause with Nazis in Ukraine or even jihadists anywhere else to assert their geopolitical interests. Because, you know, it's not what they say. Like you said, it's not what they say. It's what they do. And also they do say certain things. They do say that they're trying to secure the resources of the world. They do talk about U.S. interests. And, and very uh, sometimes very plain ways, but a lot of times it's very vague and undescribed. But we know, based on capitalism and neoliberalism, what those interests are, particularly when it comes to securing um, resources and, and markets and also combating the multipolarity of the world that's happening, where they want a unipolar world, and they only get that through leveraging the financial institutions that, that, that rape countries uh, and privatize things and enforce austerity. All of that stuff when we see who's disproportionately impacted by it globally and even domestically is should be seen as uh, the confluence between white supremacy and capitalism. And in fact, capitalism really can't be divorced from white supremacy because of how it emerged in the world as a system, an economic system, was on the backs of, you know, in slavery and, and colonialism. And so, you know, by the Western Europe. And so there's no, you know, we can't, we have to be careful not to allow them to redefine or define or, and confine what white supremacy is. And then so they get away with a whole lot. And then when the, and the only difference between the one, the crude white supremacists that, that they are talking about, and they're only talking about them domestically because those, those same forces are the ones that they're working with in, in, in Ukraine and in Eastern Europe. Uh, but the only difference between them is that they they espouse, they avow what they believe in, the preeminence and domination of, you, you know, Europe or everything that's, you know, white and the, the, the second class, third class or fourth class uh, positions, global positions of non-white people. 
Well, yes. And you know what's the difference between the person who says what they're going to do and the person who and let you know? The Nazis come out and say, hey, we are the leaders of the white race and we're the superior race and blah, blah, blah. So they're pretty straightforward. Whereas if you look at the United States policies against Haiti— Right. They're blatantly and obviously white supremacists. If you look at the upcoming summit of the Americas where the U.S. says Latin America is our, quote, backyard, we have a right to say the summit of the Americas. We have a right to point out Nicaragua, to point out uh, Venezuela, to point out Cuba. And if you've ever been to those countries, they're pretty brown and black countries to say, well, they can't come, but these other countries can come. So the enforcement of their policies is it's like. It's unspoken. Like, we don't even have to say that we're superior to these brown countries. It's so obvious we would just throw our weight around and tell them what to do. Well, wait a minute. When you say that something is in is your backyard, what does that mean? Canada's is the front yard because they're white. It means you own it. Yeah, exactly. Good point. you come in my backyard, I got something for you. (laughs) (laughs) Because you're coming on my property. Yeah. Go ahead, Netflix. Right. I agree. And I, I think one of the, the um, an added point to what Garland was saying in terms of when he raised the examples, if the summit of the Americas and, and saying that countries like Cuba, Nicaragua, Venezuela can't come, it's not only that they're uh, very African and, and indigenous population, you know, that's who they, that's the characteristic of them. But these are also countries that are exercising self-determination. They're exercising decolonization. And so there, that in itself speaks directly to the white supremacy of it. You don't have a right to not submit to being under our boot and our thumb. You cannot do that. And if we, you know, if you do, then we have the right as the supreme supreme order of the world um, to to subject you and to and to malign you and to do anything to un- undermine and destabilize your countries. And so that's that also defines and, 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 and exemplifies uh, white supremacy and, and also, but then also the, you know, democracy, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, capitalism and, and patriarchy. U.S. support for al-Qaeda-linked rebels undermines Syrian ceasefire. The United States needs to do more than wag its finger at Syrian rebel groups for commingling with al-Qaeda-affiliated Salafists, jihadists, or else an already tenuous ceasefire accord uh, between government and opposition forces is destined to collapse. Uh, You know, this sounds along the lines of the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And whether it's al-Qaeda-linked rebels or neo-Nazis in Ukraine, you know, pick one. Go ahead. Go ahead, Netfa. Right. I mean, yeah, it's exactly that. And it's also that they will foster these groups. They do more than just uh, ragging their finger. They, and they know that these are uh, al-Qaeda linked and, and, and jihad, I mean, the al-Qaeda linked and, and these extreme terrorist linked groups. They've been doing this stuff since I don't know how long in terms of working both since the the uh, war against Iran to way back in the, we talk about the 70s and, and, and in the Afghanistan, you know, when it comes to the emergence of uh, uh, the Taliban. And like I, I mean, all of this, this is part of the course for the United States. And so it again, it speaks to what we said earlier, what, what they say and profess in public and overt is different than how they really protect their interests and the type of covert operations that are deployed in order to destabilize and subjugate a particular country. And so, or, or yeah, any place. And so they you know, this is what, this is what this is about. I mean, the, the, uh, issues when it comes to how they're supporting, um, uh, uh, uh 
Saudi Arabia against Yemen and, and these forces. These are this all double standards that are only about maintaining some uh, some kind of uh, of uh, image of benevolence and 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 uh, you know goodness or whatever you want to call it. But at the same time, really just having the most insidious and obscene uh, designs and plans for domination in the world. I mean, it's a, this this is what this is what makes the United States the biggest threat to peace and security in the world because it talks with one one way with one hand and does something else uh, with another. There's another article, and the reason I put this in here, pro-Kremlin influence are using the Buffalo shooting to undermine Ukraine. So they go on, and it's a pushback, because as soon as it came out that this shooting happened, people looked, and they saw that the shooter in Buffalo had this black sun. It's a Nazi symbol that was used by the Nazis. And they uh, immediately pointed out, wait a minute, the shooter in, in Christchurch, uh, New Zealand, who shot, f- uh, what, 50 Muslims? Muslims in mosques and wounded like for another 50 or whatever it was, he had this same Nazi black son. And the very Nazis, the Azov Battalion that we are lionizing and sending $40 billion to, have the exact same Nazi sign on their patch, and they've got the Wolf's Angle Nazi sign. And people said, hey, those things kind of go together. Why are we funding Nazis? This guy's 18 years old. Could it be that the U.S. government lionizing and uplifting these Nazis as some kind of hero that gets into the minds of these young people at 18 and they're like, hey, I want to be like those heroes that our government's funding and they're saying they're great fighters. I want to be like that. I don't think it's unreasonable to say, to say that, but we see vice in these other kind of mainstream media pushing back your thoughts anyway mm-hmm. yeah i mean i mean you 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 got your spot on with that and, and and we would add that there's already been evidence that these types of uh, the groups like in azov and other uh right-wing groups in ukraine have been training anyway with far-right groups in the united states they, they they've been going on going on training they have training uh, retreat and all that, and this is before the, this war happened. You know, so there's already been international relationships with the far right. They had they they're pretty they're organized internationally and create relationships. And so the the this administration just wants to pretend that the far the expressions of overt stuff here and they want to tie it into the those who stormed the Capitol and whatnot would but they would find common cause. When it comes to uh, international or foreign policy interests in some other place, it, it shows the nature of this stuff. I think we have to be, you know, very, that's why, like in the Black Alliance for Peace and in Pan African Community Action and Organ, when we are identifying as uh, we're seeing the, our identity and our interests as tied to uh, non-white people and particularly African people or black people internationally, we don't say we when they're doing stuff because this even described they're they're against us. These are people who would subject us to the same type of repression who are talking about us when they say when the black people when they say the the was the replacement theory and all that kind of stuff so and the you and the biden uh not just the Biden administration, I also don't even think we should be do a disservice uh and and we just reduce it to a particular administration Americanism in general, like how Malcolm referred to it, this is consistent with it ever since there's never been any other administration that is not committed to like uh, American exceptionalism and to the so called economic and political and geostrategic interest 
of the United States as a as a oligarchy, as a white supremacist settler colonial project. Um, it's all committed to that, and that the we can only those of us when we say we we're subject we're oppressed uh, we by it or oppressed by it. So we have to make a delineation and a distinction between those who are setting these policies and have the power to make these decisions to support one thing uh, here and there, uh, you know, in, in the in the form of this this white supremacy and this oppressive system, and those of us who are subjected to it, who are who are, yeah. Netfa Freeman, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate it. We look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Common Dreams has an article, For Biden's Summit of the Americas, Obama's Handshake with Raul Castro Shows the Way. The U.S. president should invite all the nations of the region to the summit and shake the hands of every head of state to foster better dialogue and a brighter future for the hemisphere. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. She's the co-founder of Code Pink and the author of this piece, Medea Benjamin. As always, Medea, welcome back. Thanks. How nice to be on with you. You write, uh, on May 16, the Biden administration announced new measures to increase support for the Cuban people. They included easing travel restrictions and helping Cuban-Americans support and connect with their families. Also in place is a ridiculous Biden administration policy of trying to isolate Cuba as well as Nicaragua and Venezuela from the rest of the hemisphere by excluding them from the upcoming Summit of the Americas that will take place in June in Los Angeles. Uh, Medea, talk about how hypocritical uh, this strategy is and this, uh, this policy is of the Biden administration. Well, honestly, I don't really understand what kind of machinations they're doing because they came out with this a list of some measures that are positive. They're way late. He should have done this on day one, and they're way short. Uh, should be much more. Uh, Cuba is still on the list of states that sponsor terrorism. Uh, you still can't travel to Cuba as a tourist. Um, they, he, he eased up on remittances, but we still don't know how you're going to be able to send those remittances because the channel for doing it is still blocked. Um, so, you know, there's half measures. I think the migration stuff is easier to understand because he's terrified at the uh, numbers of Cubans who've been coming lately because of the economic situation so bad. So he's reinstated the family reunification program, says that they'll uh, abide by their obligation to give out at least 20,000 visas a year, uh, do more of that in Havana. The majority of the people are going to have to go out of the country to get their visas, which is not easy for Cubans. Uh, anyway, what my point is to say is that these are some half measures, but at the same time, he's slapping Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela in the face by not inviting them to a summit of the Americas, supposed to be all the countries of the Americas, and he's now picking and choosing who to invite. 
You know, Medea, I guess I'm kind of cynical, but I feel like that the Cuba move here is an attempt to mitigate the pressure that they've been getting over the summit of the Americas debacle, I'll call it, because so many people have been going after them. There's been so much press on it that they're like, okay, well, we'll do this. We'll hand some crumbs out to the Cubans. And don't get me wrong. I'm glad to see it. But I always think back to the Malcolm X saying that if you stick a knife in my my back for for five inches and pull it out for three, that's not, you know, we're not going to call that progress. But anyway, what are your thoughts on the idea that, you know, this maybe they're reacting to pressure from the summit of the Americas, but they don't intend on making the necessary change that they need to do? Well, yes, I'm stuck on that knife image. And I would say they're only pulling it out maybe, you know, uh, less than an inch. Uh, the, uh, and in terms of some of the Americas, you know, it's not going to satisfy those heads of state who have already said, unless they're invited, we're not coming. I mean, what are they going to come and say? Okay, we changed our mind because you've done a through, thrown a few crumbs to Cuba and now a few to Venezuela. Uh, we're going to come. No, they're not. The head of uh, the president of Mexico said, if they're not invited, he's not coming. Period. Uh, the head of Honduras has said the same thing. I heard today that the president of Guatemala is not coming because he's mad that the U.S. criticized their attorney general. Uh, and also that the, the Jair Bolsonaro from Brazil has said that he's probably not coming, uh, not for uh, the same reason uh, as uh, the principled stand that Honduras and, uh, and Mexico and some of the, the Caribbean countries are making. Uh, but it's, um, these measures are not going to do it. They're not going to appease the Cuban government and they're not going to turn his summit into a success uh, if he still refuses to invite them. Talk about the problem that the administration has now created for itself. It has backed itself into this corner. As Brother Chris used to say at, at my high school, Christian Brothers in Sacramento, you're a victim of your own event. God bless Brother Chris. Talk about this is all of their own creation. Absolutely. It's so ridiculous. How inept can they be? How long were, you know, this summit was supposed to take place over a year ago, but because of COVID, it's been postponed. Uh, So they've had three years to be thinking about this. I mean, what in the world are they thinking of? First, it's the crazy U.S. policy of not recognizing the president of Venezuela as the president of Venezuela. Um, So how can you invite the real president Maduro if you don't, if you recognize some uh, phony Juan Guaido. So that's a dilemma they created there. Uh, and yes, the whole thing is of them. Wait a minute, but then you got to go with, I was going to say hat in hand, but it was actually uh, oil drum in hand, begging <laughs> the guy who's not the president, according to you, to give you oil. Absolutely. And uh, it looks like Chevron is going to be uh, getting back into business in Venezuela. And so, yes, when it comes to the migration crisis, they talk to Cuba all of a sudden. When it comes to oil, uh, the the price of gas at the pump and elections coming up, they talk to uh, Maduro. But uh, let's get back to this issue. The sum of the Americas every three years supposed to be for heads of state of all of the Americas. So who is the U.S. just because it is hosting this year? It physically happens to be in the U.S., which hasn't happened since 1994, uh, is now saying, okay, we're not only going to host, we're going to pick and choose who gets invited. 
you know, that's not the way it works. And I don't think a hemisphere these days uh, that has a lot of progressives uh, in in power and that is transitioning to even more, let's hope in Colombia, let's hope in, in Brazil, is going to just follow along, uh, yes, sir, whatever you say, um, sure. So, yes, they've created this huge dilemma that they didn't have to. To the point of the progressive countries that would be coming, do you think the Biden administration is afraid to be in a room with the leaders of these progressive countries who will basically declare an end to neoliberalism, who will talk about the beginning of self-determination and will basically rake the United States over the coals and say, you don't run this thing anymore? Well, that's right. And that's why I put in that piece, uh, I went back to the summit that was in Panama in 2015 when Cuba was invited and Obama faced this dilemma. Do I go? Am I going to have to shake Raul Castro's hand? Uh, what's going to happen? And he decided to go and he had to sit there and listen. And I was there. I just loved it. It was like such a high to watch Obama sitting there while president after president got up and reamed the United States for its history and, and uh, contemporary policies towards Latin America. And, uh, you know, Obama took it, and then he got up, and he um, uh, basically tried to say that, you know, it was a new day for Latin America. The U.S. was—, was uh, But, you know, it, it went over well because he was there and because he was charming. Um, uh, of course, policy is more important than handshakes in the moment, but it did— herald a new policy towards Cuba, which led to Obama himself not only going to Havana, which is hugely memorial, m- memorable for the people in Cuba, uh, but also started getting some rational policies. The little measures that, uh, that Biden just made uh, are not even bringing us up to where we were under Obama. Leo Flores writes, the Trump administration openly considered a military invasion of Venezuela, going so far as to discuss the plot with opposition figures. Former U.S. Secretary of Defense Mark Esper revealed in his recently released memoirs. Your thoughts on as if we didn't know that they were always considering uh, pretty much invading any country. Um, what are your thoughts on this? Well, it's just, you know, it's a, it, it kind of makes your jaw drop when you read it, because it's one thing to kind of know what they're doing, that they were involved in the failed coup in Venezuela, well, several failed coups, uh, and uh, we knew that there was a drone that tried to uh, assassinate Maduro, and uh, we know that they've been plotting behind the scenes all kinds of ways for regime change, but to have it in print from a former Secretary of Defense when they're talking openly about assassinating a head of state. Wow. So what do you anticipate the reaction, the fallout, the reverberation from this to be? Because this is not the first time that the United— I mean, there have been, what, eight coup attempts in African countries within the last year and a half. Uh, so as as Joe Biden— talks about sovereignty and talks about democracy. And these are all the things that the Biden administration in the United States is supposed to be about and supporting. All of that does, it's just another data point to point out the fact that Joe Biden is lying. Well, it's also just another example of how hypocritical the United States is. And when 
uh, Joe Biden gets up to say to the world uh, what's happening in Ukraine is democracy versus uh, dictatorship, and we all have to come together to support democracy. Uh, and then you see in a place like Venezuela, where they've had more elections than anywhere else in Latin America, uh, for him to have uh, uh, not come out and denounce um, what has just been revealed uh, that under Trump, there were these attempts to assassinate Maduro. There were these attempts and, and discussions to uh, have U.S. troops go in and invade. Uh, I think for the global South, it already feels um, how hypocritical the United States is when it talks about rules-based order. Um, it's it's a, a, another example of um, how high and mighty the rhetoric is, but how low and dirty the actions are. And the U.S. is still trapped between a an oil shortage in Juan Guaido as they have to go to um, Nicolas Maduro. <laughs> well, they also have to go go to MBS in Saudi Arabia, hat in hand, to say, please, please, and talk about murderers and dictators. Um, so, yes, I hope that uh, there will be some thawing in the relations with Maduro and with uh, Venezuela. Uh, the people need relief from these sanctions, as they do in Cuba. But I also hope that the, uh, a lot of the heads of state of Latin America uh, give uh, Biden the hell he deserves uh, at the upcoming summit. Uh, whose administration was it that sent the drone to assassinate? Was it Maduro in his first year in office? Yeah, that, yes. Yeah, that, that's right. That so they tried to blow him up with a drone? Yeah. Who, who's, uh, was that Obama? I don't, I don't remember. remember. I think it probably was. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Anyway, Medea Benjamin, as always, you know, you kind of lose track of a you know, of the United States when it comes to assassinating uh, foreign leaders. Yeah, and Democrats and Republicans alike. So yes. <laughs> Medea Benjamin, as always, thank you so much for your time. Great, great piece, and we look forward to having you back. Good being on with you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. There's a great op-ed. Journalists accused Israel of targeting them two weeks before killing of Abu Akleh. Just two weeks before Israeli forces assassinated beloved Palestinian-American journalist Shanine Abu Akleh, the International Federation of Journalists, the Palestinian Journalists Syndicate, and the International Center for Justice for Palestinians had submitted a formal complaint to the International Criminal Court accusing Israel of systematically targeting Palestinian journalists. How concerned should Americans be about this assassination and the Biden administration's failure to address it? For insight, let's turn to our next guest. She's a professor emerita at Thomas Jefferson School of Law, where she taught from 1991 to 2016, a former criminal defense attorney and past president of the National Lawyers Guild, and she's the author of this piece, Professor Marjorie Cohn. As always, welcome back. Well, thanks for having me. You know, Garland and I, being, I guess we can be called journalists, 
even though neither of us study journalism, they put on helmets that say press. They put on jackets that say press. The press, even in war situations, are supposed to be off limits. They're not supposed to be targets. Here, Sharin Abu Akleh was assassinated by the Israeli government, at least in terms of Western media. Some say she died. You know, rarely do you hear the word assassinated. How significant is this? Well, this really was an assassination. It was an extrajudicial execution. That means uh, execution not through judicial means, not through, say, getting the death penalty in a judicial proceeding. Um, And as you said, she had a helmet. She had a flak jacket marked press. It was clear who she was. She's been reporting for 25 years from Palestine. She's known all over uh, the Arab world. By the way, she was a Palestinian American, and she was shot by an Israeli sniper uh, right under her ear, which was about the only part that was not of her head that was not protected. It was clearly an assassination, and yet Israel tried to cover it up, as they usually do. Um, They have a history of blocking investigations into war crimes, and uh, that's really what this this was. Now, they said, well, we're not sure. We think it was a Palestinian who shot her, which is, you know, just doesn't pass the straight face test. And then they said, well, maybe it was an Israeli. Well, they know very well that it was. And in fact, they were independent observers. And the Israeli human rights organization, Beth Selim, and a number of other um, witnesses and investigators who said clearly she was shot by Israeli forces. And this was a war crime. Um, It violated the right to life, the freedom of expression, um, the freedom of the media, and it was a willful killing under the Rome Statute for the International Criminal Court. One of the things in your article you say, we must insist on understanding her killing within the broader and ongoing context of Israeli violence against Palestinian journalists. Please explain. Well, more than 40 Palestinian journalists have been reportedly killed since the year 2000, hundreds of them injured or targeted for violence. So what's happening is that Israel does not want its war crimes being revealed, and it's literally shooting the messenger. I think uh, there is a an analogy to be drawn here with uh, Julian Assange, although he has not yet been killed, but there were plans to assassinate him, to kidnap and assassinate him during the Trump administration. In fact, Donald Trump asked for specific plans to be drawn up to assassinate him. But Julian Assange's so-called crime was revealing and exposing evidence of U.S. war crimes in Iraq, in Afghanistan, in Guantanamo. And that's why he is now in custody, the U.S. government trying to extradite him to the United States to try him under the Espionage Act uh, and give him 175 years in prison. And that's what countries like Israel and the U.S. do when they don't want their crimes exposed. They kill or they imprison the messenger. And in the case of Israel, with the, with the 
support of the U.S. government, by the way, um, Israel is going to do its best to cover this up. And when I say the support of the U.S. government, I'm talking about the $3.8 billion a year annually that Israel, that the U.S. gives Israel in military aid with no strings attached. And if the U.S. government really wanted to stop the crimes that Israel is committing against the Palestinians and they are legion, um, they would cut that, cut that funding, and yet they don't do that. If we look at censorship in the context of a spectrum, with the assassination, uh, that uh, with this assassination as being the ultimate end of, uh, or the extreme of, of one end of the spectrum, where do we put uh, Joe Biden's uh, attempted censorship commission or committee uh, on the spectrum? Because it's all about stifling the narrative. It's all about uh, eliminating contradictory analysis. So if, if shooting the messenger on or assassinating the messenger is on one end, as in Shireen uh, Abu Akleh, then is it hyperbole? For me to say what Biden was trying to do here uh, with his uh, with his uh, uh, censorship council is on the spectrum as well. Um, I'm not clear on what censorship council you're referring to. Biden, the commission that Biden just tried to introduce, Biden's government disinformation board that today they now have had to put a pause on because people are, are outraged that under Homeland Security, Joe Biden would try to have a disinformation council. Right. Oh, I see what you're saying. OK, yes. Well, that is, of course, highly political. Who decides what is uh, valid information, truthful information, and what is disinformation? And you remember during the Trump administration, they used to refer to alternative facts um, and make up things like uh, Donald Trump won the 2020 election and repeating that enough times that the critical mass of people, although a, a minority of people, really believed it so much so that they attempted an insurrection on January 6th. So it really depends upon who controls the narrative and who controls uh, the decision of, about whether something is disinformation or not. And quite frankly, um, I would not have a lot of confidence in the Department of Homeland Security making the decision about what is disinformation and what isn't. The Biden administration's reaction to the assassination of Shireen Abu Akleh uh, at first was, of course, how terrible. Of course, they have to say that because she, she's a, a U.S. citizen. Um, and, uh, you know, we should have an independent investigation. But no criticism at all leveled against Israel. Um, almost never does the U.S. government level any criticism against Israel. And interestingly, and this is, that's, I think that this dovetails with your question, um, the uh, senators, and I think we might have discussed this in an earlier interview, but uh, 100 U.S. senators who can't agree on anything all unanimously agreed to ask the International Criminal Court to investigate Russian leaders for war crimes in Ukraine. And yet, when the U.S. has, has done everything it can to block the ICC, not joining the ICC, trying to undermine it at every step of the way. Um, but the ICC, the International Criminal Court, has 
launched a formal investigation into war crimes by Israel and, to a lesser extent, the Palestinians since 2014, so-called Operation Protective Edge, um, in, in uh, 2014, during which Israeli forces killed 2,251 Palestinians. And the prosecutor, the former chief prosecutor of the ICC, found a reasonable basis to believe that Israeli forces committed war crimes, willful killing, willfully causing serious injury, disproportionate force, transferring Israelis into Palestinian territory in these illegal settlements. Um, And yet the... Um, Biden administration and uh, and the U.S. government, the, the the Senate, obviously thinks that the ICC is competent enough to try Russians for war crimes in Ukraine. But the Biden administration made a statement that it doesn't have confidence that the ICC uh, can properly take jurisdiction of Israeli leaders. Um, pursuant to this investigation that's pending. So it's a real double standard, and we have to look very, very clearly when people talk about disinformation, what is the source? You know, the other thing I'd like to ask you about is, and this is something I found outrageous, there was a funeral procession going on, and the Israeli troops went up and actually attacked the pallbearers, and I saw a video, they're beating the pallbearers, and the pallbearers are trying to hold the casket up. Your thoughts on that? Well, The Israeli authorities wanted the casket, Shireen's casket, to to, to, uh, go to the church in a car, because then um, people would not see, you know, the media would not bring images to the public of mourners walking through the streets with her casket. Well, um, the thousands of mourners did come out to honor her and, uh, and carried her casket through the street. And to add insult to injury, or I should say insult to assassination, um, the Israeli occupation forces attacked them uh, and uh, beating and kicking the mourners and then forcing pallbearers to nearly drop the coffin. Um, and that was that was shown footage was shown um, in the media and it, it's it's so they almost dropped the casket i mean it's the height of dishonor first you assassinate this beloved um palestinian american journalist and then uh you you attack her pallbearers and there are images of armed uniformed Israeli uh, soldiers and, uh, and police that were literally attacking people who were carrying a casket through the streets. It's just, uh, it's beyond the pale. And as I understand it, the, to, again, to use, as you said, to add insult to assassination, that a lot of the uh, Israeli government ire was centered around the raising of Palestinian flags. And that that was another reason why they didn't want the parade to go through the street. They didn't want Palestinian flags raised. And it's also important to understand, as you just mentioned a little earlier, these are our tax dollars at work. Yes. Well, um, this was in the occupied Palestinian territory that it took place. And Israel does not want Palestinian flags. In fact, I think they've outlawed the raising of Palestinian flags in Palestinian territory that Israel is occupying, again, criminal on the part of the Israeli government. And 
So in order to prevent these flags and the media depicting uh, Palestinian flags and uh, preventing this popular support for this beloved journalist, um, they were attacking the pallbearers carrying her coffin. It's uh, it's really uh, just it, it's horrific and it's criminal. And there really needs to be accountability in the International Criminal Court. Professor Marjorie Cohen, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that piece. We look forward to having you back. Well, thanks for having me. Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. The Biden administration has put a pause on the Department of Homeland Security's newly created Disinformation Governance Board after its head, Nina Jankowicz, was criticized. Wow. That's a quick turn of events. I guess the old adage is true. If you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. For insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's a journalist who writes at thepolemicist.net. His latest piece is entitled A Reader Sounds Off on PayPal's Ban on Consortium News. Jim Cavanaugh, as always, Jim, welcome back. Thank you for having me. So on Monday, the Department of Homeland Security decided to pause or put that, well, it was reported, shut down the board, according to multiple people with knowledge of the situation. By Tuesday, Jankowitz had drafted a resignation letter in response to the dissolution. Then in Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas said that it could have done a better job of communicating, and they're in the business of communication, what it is and what the board was supposed to be about. Jim, this is farcical on a number of fronts. The first two, one, the administration's rationale for this was so weak, it couldn't withstand criticism from the so-called right. And then second, and I didn't realize that Garland and I were on the right. Far right. Far right. Far right. And then two, the Washington Post article about pausing the disinformation board when you read the article is nothing but disinformation. <laughs> so, so, Jim Kavanaugh, help us out, man. Uh, uh, you know, it's just, you read this stuff, and this is a great one. Uh, the great crisis we're facing is what I call an epistemological crisis. People can't think straight. <laughs> you know, you can't make a lot, you can't make a logical argument or recognize the, the the logical flaws in what you're doing and the contradictions. I mean, the reason this was so uh, uh, amenable to critique and so easily shut down was that they had some kind of, it was some kind of messaging strategy they could have done. The problem was they couldn't explain what it was going to do because they, they had no concrete idea of what it was going to do except 
something that nobody wants. They kept denying it was going to be doing the things that it was going to be doing. And the very, uh, you know, article about it in the New York Times, you know, says, uh, you know, we weren't going to it continually contradict itself. About this. It says we weren't, this disinformation board wasn't going to be about controlling criticism or, but what happened to Nina Jankowitz and the disinformation, but it was the victim of the disinformation it was going to stop. So they were admitting in that, in one sense, that they, they were out there to stop criticism. And on the other hand, they're denying it. You know, the whole article is about doing the kinds of work that they're denying they were going to do, <laughs> you know, which is stopping criticism and channeling uh, or making sure that nobody's speaking outside the the norms. You know, we, we're here to stop disinformation, Russian disinformation that sows division. So you're going to stop anything that sows division. You're going to stop the kind of discussion we've just had over the last couple of weeks about the, the disinformation board. Oh, no, 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 no. All we're here to do is to talk about human trafficking and migrants being lied to, you know, so these lies, this constant going back and forth, the problem with everything they're doing, all the policies they're doing, is that they can't tell you what they're really about. So they have to invent some kind of version of it that doesn't make any sense and doesn't hold water, and it's very easily dispersed. Uh, two things I'd like to get you to comment on. This is um, One of them is what you said, and that is they can't say what they're going to do because we already know it. One-way disinformation. We already know this was a board that would say if you dissented against the government narrative, that was disinformation. But the government narrative could never be disinformation. Disinformation only goes one way. The other part, and I think this is important in reading this Washington Post story in the narrative, I did a quick search. No less than Ten times in this story, they use the words far right or right wing. And that is the attempt to create an Overton window that says, now, everybody I know, left wingers, socialists, everybody outside the narrative said, I oppose this. It's the Ministry of Truth. But they, in classic disinformation form, they attempt to create a narrative that says the only people that opposed the disinformation board were not even right-wingers, far right-wing, right-wing, crazy right-wingers. Uh, what's your, what, are you, what are your thoughts on those two comments, um, Jim? Again, it, it drives me crazy, and it, it becomes impossible to talk to people in a sensible way. You know, as you said, they're disappearing anything that's left of the Democratic Party, and they're turning it into right, the, the right wing. You know, this, is a, this has been... They've been invincible about this. They've been adamant about it. They won't stop doing this. You know, you and and I are right wingers now. You know, and you can't get away from this. People are just uh, and and they just assume it. And as you say, what they when they write an article about this, they assume that you agree with every assumption they're make they're making in that including in that respect. That there's no such thing as a left-wing critique of the Democratic Party or of the position of the Biden administration or of this disinformation governance board. All the critique of it comes from the right. Well, the most, you know, of course, the most prominent people, the voices in the ma- mainstream media is Fox News because that billionaire has a platform. And, but, you know, and they won't let anybody from the left who speaks against it onto the mainstream media that is supposed to represent the left, which is the Democratic Party aligned MSNBC and CNN. But this is nonsense. I mean, 
this they've created a framework of political thought in which the Democratic Party is the left. That is nonsense. There's no historical or political sense, you know, of any depth in which the Democratic Party in the United States of America is a left-wing party, or Joe Biden is a Marxist, or Barack Obama is a socialist. This is nonsense that the right agrees with, and the right is very happy to have this. You know, they are confirming a framework of political thought that's exactly that of the right wing, that there's, you know, anything to the left of the Democratic Party is not only is so crazy, we can't even pay any attention to it and it doesn't really exist. So this is, you know, it's very, very frustrating. And it becomes, it's become, you know, people who five years ago, let alone 10 years ago, had some kind of notion that being anti-war and being in favor of free speech and being against censorship was generally associated with the left, have just kind of forgotten about that. <laughs> you know, and now what really is the left and the right is the Democratic and Republican parties. And that's it. And the, the allied media, they're allied media. And that's just, that's limiting thought. It's an epistemological crisis of the highest order because it stops you from ever having a discussion that'll get you out of the very narrow framework that's defined by those two parties. And to that point, uh, Black Agenda Report has a piece uh, Margaret Kimberly wrote, uh, Liberals Drive State Censorship. She writes, twice in the month of April, Barack Obama spoke about, quote-unquote, disinformation, first at the University of Chicago and then at Stanford. He claimed that democracy is at risk because of social media. Democracy is certainly at risk, but not because of anyone's tweets. His words were really meant to frighten Americans into accepting censorships should anyone dare to present a narrative that differs from the states. Of course, that isn't what Obama said. Then she continues, less than one week after the Stanford speech, the Department of Homeland Security announced the establishment of a disinformation governance board. So he was out there floating the trial balloons and tilling the soil so that his former vice president could come behind all of that. He basically doing the blocking so that Joe Biden can come behind him and announce this Department of Homeland Security disinformation governance board, which now falls flat on its face. Well, you know, first of all, let's hope it has. I mean, they're now going to pausing it. They're originally going to do away with not only that, but all of the working groups about disinformation and misinformation and malinformation. And then they decided, no, we're just going to pause it. So don't, you, don't have, you, don't have to, you don't have to resign yet, Nina. Uh, uh, but that is what's happening. This, this, is, a, this is a full court offensive uh, by uh, the defenders of what is the current American deep state, which is controlled by the Democratic Party and the you know, so-called, uh, for a better, lack of a better word, liberal establishment, you know, uh, uh, which is the, the current uh, wardens of American capitalism and American imperialism, uh, you know, which will, will be easily replaced and have replaced the, the so-called right-wing Republican versions of that. But, you know, and it's, but it is a program for state censorship, and it's going to be it's going to be operated by whoever is in control of the, the state and the government at the time. I mean, can you imagine if Donald Trump had done this? Well, guess what? Donald Trump might be in charge of it, <laughs> you know, and or Ron DeSantis might be in charge of it. And nobody seems to want to think about that. This is just, you know, but really that's because fundamentally 
the deep state, <laughs> the, the people who are the guardians of the American empire and American capitalism, want this in place <laughs> because they are – this has not been placed to, to – to, they don't want any kind of discourse that, quote-unquote, sows division. And we have divisions in this country, and people should be angry and should be divided over certain uh, – over the policies of this country. We should not just accept going into war by, you know – with no discussion about we're going to send $40 billion to provoke the Russians again. You know, so this is, this is something that we should have a a so-called divisive debate about that until it's settled in a way that's acceptable by most of the population. That's not the way they want to have things done. There's another article. Almost half of Biden's subscribers on Twitter are bots, analysts claim. And we're seeing, you know, uh, apparently uh, Elon Musk did some questioning about how many authentic users were on Twitter. There's been some analyzing that have said up to 70 percent of his followers. This is an an, uh, what are your thoughts about all of the the Twitter bots? Based on my experience, I believe it. Your thoughts, Jim? Uh, It's hard not to believe, you know. I mean, one kind of assumes it, I think, at this point. You know, and Musk is doing some shrewd stuff here. Now, he's saying, you know, uh, at, he's put himself in a position where he can demand this information, okay? And he may be doing that for his own purposes, his own self, uh, selfish purposes, but it's, a, it's good information to have. And I think you know, that's one thing that a, that a social platform like Twitter can do. They can try to enforce uh, real people... <laughs> You know, you have to have a real identity. You have to be tied to a, some kind of. We have to know who's talking, or you know, have, have have someone has to have a way of knowing that a real person is talking. That's to me a reasonable thing that uh, that a social media platform can do, or a real person, or a real organization. You know, and we we, we should have, try and find some way to know that 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 one organization hasn't created you know six thousand sock puppets. Uh, you know, that's something that would be a reasonable thing for a. a a social media platform to do, as opposed to, you know, this is now information and you can't see this because it might sow division. Uh, but they spend all their time on the latter and not on the former. So I don't know what they can do about that. I think that everybody knows that this is the case all over. Anybody can create a, an account with it, with a, an email and anybody can create an email. It's a hard thing to do, but we should know and have a sense of what's doing. I think most of the people on the platform know how to negotiate that. They know how to look at an account and see whether you know, I've been involved for, with, with some discussions over a few tweets, few tweet exchanges, and I realized this doesn't sound right. This doesn't sound like a real person talking to me. You know, so you, you, get, to, you get to know that. But uh, this is uh, the, the more, you know, we know that the parties and, the, and political organizations create and spend a lot of money buying consultants, paying consultants who create thousands and thousands of fake accounts for them, sock puppet accounts and bot accounts. So that's something I think we all assume at this point. And it's, that is a real problem with social media that we should be aware of and that they should try and do something about. Jim Cavanaugh, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. And uh, we look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you are listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned.
We are back, and you are listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. General Dynamics calls critics radical skeptics for undermining U.S. foreign policy. On May 4th, General Dynamics held its annual shareholder meeting. This meeting took place virtually, possibly in response to last year when shareholders were able to directly engage with the General Dynamics board and ask how they justify the destruction and death their weapons cause. Code Pink co-founder Medea Benjamin was able to ask her shareholder question last year to ask CEO Phoebe uh, Novakovic how she justifies making $21 million a year while a 2,000-pound General Dynamics bomb hit a Yemeni marketplace and killed 97 civilians, including 25 children. Well, for insight into this, let's. Uh, what does this say about capitalism? What does this say about democracy? And what does it say about missing disinformation? And who's really answering or not answering concerns from the public? Let's turn to our next guest. He's a peace activist, author of Blood on Our Hands, The American Invasion in Iraq, Nick Davies, as always, Nick. Welcome back. Yeah, hi. Well... As as uh, Shay Lebo said in that article, um, I, you know, it, <laughs> we're talking about capitalism and democracy, and but what it really says is, um, is is you know what what actually is our our actually existing political and economic system when in effect you have um this military industrial complex completely you know a self-licking ice cream cone where they spend millions and millions of dollars to lobby congress in favor of um and not just an absolutely uh corrupt and and exorbitant military budget but one in which half the money actually comes back to them you know it's a it's a it's a foreign policy based on um you know simply uh promoting the interests of uh these weapons companies um to to the tune of of trillions of dollars over over several years and and this this is our system whether you want to call it capitalism or you want to call it democracy uh i mean it, it is a form of capitalism but it's a it's a form of capitalism in which um the capitalists call all the shots including over our government and how it spends its money and this this is the result this is the result is is as you said you know dropping bombs on marketplaces and killing hundreds of people um and and now you know we we see in ukraine um that uh you know that 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 this war in which americans are not not even fighting or not being officially sent to fight um it, it is still just a bonanza 
for, for these for these weapons companies as as the United States fights to the last Ukrainian against Russia in Ukraine. You know, I, I remember when, when I was at Fox, I used to always see General Jack Keane, and I don't know how old this thing is, but I know when he was there, when I used to see him, this was some years ago, he was on the board of General Dynamics, and when I look at that, it says General Jack Keane, retired general, right? But then it goes on to say he's the director of MetLife and General Dynamics. He serves as a member of the Department of Defense Policy Board. He's also a contributor and analyst for ABC News, so that we see that connection where it's he you're on you're on in the news you're working for general dynamics or whatever you're still with the pentagon with the defense policy review board and yet you when you go on the news you don't tell the people that you are promoting war to the, of your associations with these other groups uh, and, and i think that shows the biggest part of the problem your thoughts well and i mean there's another member of the general dynamics board whose name is general uh, Mattis, who not so long ago was actually uh, the Secretary of Defense. I mean, this is talk about a revolving door. I, I mean, the, the these guys they they come up through West Point, which, by the way, has you know the among you certainly the 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 lowest academic standards of any. Um, you know, so-called college that or university um, that uh, that is considered an elite institution, and basically, one you know, once they get through there, they're just part of this little club. Um, you know, um, Pompeo is another one, another one from West Point who, uh, you know, after stints in the military and the CIA. Um, got funded by uh, the Koch brothers to to open a um, a company in Kansas, building uh, parts for um, for U.S. fighter jets, and um, and and then you know back through the revolving door um, into Congress, and before you know it, he's he's the frigging director of the CIA, and and then the Secretary of State, and you know so these these are the people running our country and we all need to be real to understand that and be really clear about it um there is actually a, an amazing book that that sort of un, uncovers a lot of that whole mafia by a law professor from West Point um and I'm just trying to remember his name and um but um so it's it's just escaping me right now, but um, and yeah, he he basically described how from 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 the very first day that, that those cadets walk in to West Point, um, they are part of an exclusive club that um, that ultimately wields you know absolutely undemocratic uh, undemocratic corrupt power in this country. Okay, that's the book. The author is Tim Bakken, B-A-K-K-E-N, and the title of the book is The Cost of Loyalty, and the subtitle for that is Dishonesty, Hubris, and Failure, 
in the U.S. military. And, you know, in the introduction to the book, he asks, why is it that, you know, with all these trillions of dollars we spend on the military, the U.S. military has not won a serious war since 1945? And, and he says, here's the answer, you know, because basically the military is run by a mafia of self-serving bastards, who care nothing for human life, and um, and and they just wield this absolute disproportionate power, and and in fact they 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 wield a great deal of power over the American psyche, because you know along with everything else, the military spends billions of dollars to promote itself as as some kind of. Um, uh, you know, institution that we should all look up to. Um, and uh, so anyway, if anyone really wants to dig into that, Tim Backen, The Cost of Loyalty, it is a great book. And I mean, <laughs> this guy actually had to seek whistleblower protection to keep his job at, at West Point. But he, he is one of the few civilian professors there, and he knows it inside out, and he has exposed the corruption, you know, and a lot of dirty little secrets at the heart of that institution and its role in, um, you know, in power in the United States. Ukraine is now the top recipient of U.S. military aid. It has now surpassed Egypt and Israel. Talk about this one. Even without a proposed $20 billion military aid package, the Senate is considering the U.S. is already the largest donor of military aid to Ukraine. Last week, Biden called on Congress to approve the proposal, saying money for shipments to Ukraine was set out to run out in 10 days. The Senate Monday moved to advance the bill. As gas prices rise in this country, we can't find infant formula and we don't have money for social programs, but we've got plenty of money to be sure that Ukrainians get paid and they have gas in their cars and food on their table. Well, actually, I, I, I don't think much of this gets to ordinary Ukrainians. Exactly. That's not what this is about at all. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and so, I mean, yeah, the, I mean, the, the amounts of money, you know, I mean, you know, no wonder General Dynamics is in the uh, armaments business. In fact, um, uh, now what was his name? Henry Crown, who started General Dynamics. I mean, he figured that out. He was he was basically in you know in business with like the Hiltons and and people like that in Chicago, you know, in the construction business, building hotels for them. And in World War II, he became a um, military procurement officer at the Pentagon, you know, doing his his bit for the country. And he figured something out. He figured out that this was that this weapons business was, um, you know, had incredible potential. And so, yeah, he, he started um, General Dynamics in the 1950s. Um, and um, his his son, Lester Crown, was, I mean, I mean un, again, this is, you know, a Chicago uh, family with, uh, with uh, roots in the mafia and all the rest of it. And um, 
And so his, his son is uh, Lester Crown, who's now 80 or 90. He, he also served as CEO of General Dynamics for a while. And he was also one of the major, major patrons throughout his political career of a man named Barack Obama, also from Chicago. Um, I've heard of him. He was in, yes. Yeah, well, Lester Crown was introduced to Barack Obama when Barack Obama was an intern at a law firm in Chicago, you know, in the summer from Harvard. And um, but he ended up bankrolling an awful lot of uh, Barack Obama's military career. And so guess what? When he became president, <laughs> surprise, surprise, you know, he was he was not um the, the peace candidate that uh, that many of his supporters believed. Um, and in, in fact, General Dynamics did very, very well out of Barack Obama's presidency. You know, they went from building uh, one Virginia-class submarine a year to two Virginia-class submarines a year. And uh, um, they, they, they produced um, these new destroyers that the Navy said it didn't even want, that ended up costing billions of dollars each for each destroyer. These are the Zumwalt-class destroyers. Um, and even as the Navy said, it said it didn't want them because the, you know, Russian-Chinese ship missiles basically had now reduced this ship and its mission to just a, a sort of floating, sitting duck. Um, and yet... Sure enough, uh, Obama came through for them, and there are now, uh, you know, poor uh, uh, American sailors off there on these ships, you know, just waiting for us to declare war on China and and uh, to get blown to pieces. So, um, you know, this is this is general dynamics, and um, and. And uh, and and now we, you know, we we're seeing um, we're seeing them profiting from a war in in Ukraine that you know the U.S. really sort of pretends not to be part of, um, and uh, yet, as as with Syria, you know, and that was Obama too to go into Syria on a covert basis where um, essentially we were allied with al-Qaeda, and uh, the, the U.S. was not officially at war there. Of course, we still have troops there today, but um, and that may well be the case in Ukraine, too. Okay. But uh, anyway. Nick Davies, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you, Wilmer. Thank you, Garland. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. The Times of Israel reports U.S. to participate in Israeli military simulation of large-scale attack on Iran. The planned drills come as talks to revive the Iran nuclear deal are stalled. 
The U.S. will participate in Israel's largest drill simulating a strike on Iran's nuclear facilities as part of the broader chariots of fire exercise. This is according to Israeli News Channel 13. For insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's a podcaster, host of The Left is Dead, James Carey. Mr. Carey, as always, welcome back. Oh, good to be here. So this is from an unsourced report in the uh, uh, Times of Israel, and the the Air Force will serve as a complementary force with refueling planes, drilling uh, with Israeli fighter jets as they simulate entering Iranian territory and carry out repeated strikes. James Carey, if we're trying to get to the finish line on uh, the JCPOA, this seems to be a heck of a way to make friends and influence people. James Carey. Yeah, I mean, I think that it could be, you know, a lot of this probably started um, with Israel making demands intentionally to throw a wrench in things. This is ha- how often does this happen? I mean, we've had uh, Benjamin Netanyahu come to Congress with his cartoon bomb. Um, we've seen multiple, you know, infographics about how close Iran is to having a bomb undercutting, you know, U.S. policy. We saw the freak out when Obama just abstained on the uh, settlement votes. And uh, I think that even if we're intending to go into the JCPOA with half good intentions, which is generous, but better than normal. I think if we have, you know, moderately good intentions trying to go back into the JCPOA, Israel will definitely do quite a few things to throw wrenches in it. And I think that uh, this, even if, you know, the U.S. agrees to participate, it's sort of a demand that Israel is making as a trade-off for us talking to Iran. And you saw that with Saudi Arabia, too, when they got their Yemen war. So this is... Pretty standard, but I should say it's a bad idea because I don't think they understand the defense capabilities of Iran. Well, you know, I think they do. And I, and I recently read something, I think it was Michael Esper, a guy that I don't think much of, but apparently he said in his book or whatever that that Israel was trying to get the U.S. to attack Iran. And so I think the Israelis' hawks want a war with Iran, but they feel that they can't you know, stand up to the challenge, and they want the U.S. to come there and go to war with Iran, and this is a a dress rehearsal for if they could ever get that. But B, and let me add this, I believe that as long as Tony Blinken is Secretary of State, there is no possibility of any rapprochement with Iran in in any way, shape, or form, because he is, uh, you know, kind of Benjamin Netanyahu incarnate. Anyway, your thoughts on all of that? Yeah, I think that, I I think you're right that there's there's definitely... He, with Biden being how he is, I think there's people under him throwing wrenches in it in his own home, you know. Um, and I think the U.S. Uh, going back into this, it, it's uh, the calculations for a war with Iran. You know, look at uh, Israeli jets have been shot down in Syria. Uh, we're not going to war over that, and that's a much you know less military capable country than Iran. Iran has. God knows how many missiles pointed outwards ready to go, you know, if something happens. It's almost like the Korean border. Um, I, I don't think that the U.S. necessarily thinks through these things, but they clearly 
know better than to enter into a war on Israel's behalf. And that has always kind of been the case. I mean, the first meeting between Netanyahu and Bill Clinton, uh, Netanyahu left the room and Clinton asked who the superpower, who he thought the superpower was. You know, this has always been the trade-offs with Israel have always kind of been like this. And uh, But yeah, Biden's shop is definitely not interested. It's the same way saying Jared Kushner was interested in making peace between the Arab nations and Israel. That just wasn't true. And, you know, the deals signed were so fake, and an Israeli airline still can't fly over Saudi Arabia. So this is, um, I, I think that they may try and lead us into a war, but I'm sorry for the Israelis. If they're getting shot down in a weaker country like Syria, and we're not, you know, we're not coming to the rescue, uh, I don't think we're going to do it with Iran. I think Obama wouldn't have done that. He, you know, there was moments where he refused, and I think Biden, someone smart enough, Blinken would like to go, but I think that some other people are smart enough to know not to do that. Following up on the point that you just made about the United States not thinking through these things, that makes me wonder. And this may be a very sophomoric question, but I've been known to do that. How much of this has less to do with the United States flexing militarily towards Iran and just more to do with the United States following blindly behind Israel for Israeli domestic political purposes? Yeah, if, if that I, makes sense. Yeah, clearly. Yeah, it, it it does because the Israelis portray us as this sort of um, indebted ally. We have to be here for them because we have this special bond, and they love to play that up here. And the U.S. will follow them because again, there there's this move to. It's the same with Saudis. Biden switching the Saudis from offensive weapons to defensive weapons. It means nothing. Um, the resistance to Israel by any U.S. administration is primarily symbolic. You know, there's moments where Bibi will come over here or somebody will come over here and complain, like somebody like Bennett will come over here and complain. And for the most part, you know, the U.S. does follow Israel because they want to keep them happy. Israel sits on an important, you know, crux of the world right now because they're not willing to take a side in this Russia-Ukraine thing either. Uh, because they have a lot of business with Russia. So, and you're seeing other countries like that too, Saudi Arabia, China, obviously, you know, uh, India's got a big balance to work out. Um, I think that the U.S. just really tries to trail Israeli policy, hoping that, you know, things will turn out that they need us more than, you know, they need us at the same level they used to, say, 30 years ago, which... Now that they're doing things like making the helmet for the F-35, I don't think that they do. They can do business with other people. they got a lot of Russians and Ukrainians in that country. Uh, in what will fall as uh, under uh, consistent support for crazy people, former U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo has paid a controversial visit to Albania where he met with the head of the anti-Iran, uh, the MEK, Mujahideen El Kalk organization, and voiced his support for the notorious cult. So now we're supporting jihadis in Syria, Nazis in Ukraine, and this kind of weird, offbeat religious cult that has that, ha- that until a few years ago was listed as a terrorist group, and we did de- and we delisted it as a terrorist group and started funding it. Your thoughts, James? Yeah, this is these weirdos. Um, 
I remember writing an article about them and they emailed me the next day to tell me why I was wrong. And again, Pompeo, always in this funny role where he's concerned about Muslims in China or now he's teaming up with this weird quote-unquote Marxist cult uh, from Iran that helped kill Iranians with, you know, with the Iraqi army during the Iran-Iraq war. Like you said, they were just terrorists too a few years ago, but it's, I think as things are falling apart, we just have to go seek out the only true believers we can find in countries now. And with neoliberal capitalism dominating everything, I don't think there's many true believers around because everyone on earth is basically so disengaged or disconnected from politics materially. And I think that and this has been normal. You know, John Bolton was doing all these things. It just, we're beyond um, this sort of neocon thing. And I think that the Trump administration blended in just fine with the neoconservative policy. Look at the types of friends they made, you know, they Juan Guaido and all these guys, just clowns. And this is a real clown show, but it shows that, man, we're running out of good allies to take on, aren't we? Because this is the kind of stuff we're dragging up. These people, we have to take off the terror list and things like that. You know, next they'll be taking off a bunch of exiled Cubans. So it's interesting to see that they're back and it's just that they're still tricking them, but I'm not surprised because I think we're going to see even dumber groups come to the forefront as time goes on. This article, which was in press TV says that the U S and the EU removed the MKO from their list of terrorist organizations in order to use them as proxies against Iran. And so to your you know, earlier point, this is just further evidence of the, the lengths and depth to which the United States will go uh, in order to foment unrest uh, around the world. And they've got a list of people, John McCain, Rudy Giuliani, John Bolton, Joe Lieberman, uh, all of these folks have gone to events sponsored by what the United States once considered to be, and what many still consider to be, a terrorist organization. You know, I, I think the good thing is, well, not the good thing because the country may collapse before people notice. These people are frauds. They can't go back to Iran and think that they can set up a government. It's just as le- like legitimate as those people carrying around the flags of the Shah. Um, it's a Chalabi situation in Iraq, the Guaido situation in Venezuela, you know, these people can't, they don't have popular support. Like I said, these people, you know, the MKO was shooting at Iranians in the oil fields in the east of Iraq during the Iran-Iraq war. They immediately defected over to Saddam. So there's no way that these groups, you know, they're basically scam artists. They're, they're funneling money from massive donors in the U.S. and other Western countries and just selling them a lie because these groups cannot go back to it's these countries and actually have any popular base. Most of them haven't been there in 40 years. I think it's just, they're trying anything they have. Again, they're trying any tactic they have and the tactics they have are really bad. It's taking this kind of loser group off the terrorist list and trying to work with them. It shows that, you don't have any friends. There's no state actors helping you in this. You know, the U.S. is kind of lonely out there. You're supposed to be, NATO's supposed to be so important. Where are they? You know, and it, nope, sorry, we have these weird cults and fascists and all this other stuff. 
A Pentagon investigation claims it has found no wrongdoing in a 2019 U.S. military strike against an eastern Syrian town that killed at least 80 civilians. Well, I mean, the Pentagon found no wrongdoing. That's the problem. Um, yeah. I, uh, what, it, what else can I say, though? Really, it's dark, but it's how they always are. It's their blow of a wedding party, and it's, well, we had the wrong metadata. You strafe a Doctors Without Borders hospital for a half an hour, and he's like, well, we thought they were in there. Um, this is just, I don't know. The U.S. military seems to be falling apart in itself. They're, the t- there's no such thing as precise targeting. That's why it's ridiculous we get people like the Saudis weapons and think they can be responsible with them because we can't even be responsible with them, the ones that even work. Um, but... Of course, they're going to find themselves innocent because they have to say that this is just collateral damage. But the fact of the matter is we don't care. I mean, nobody cares anymore. We're going on such a vague intel. There is no real intel. The only thing the CIA is doing in like countries that are falling apart is just buying arms to send them somewhere else. So there's not really any effort to preserve this because the war on terror is just ground on in the background for so long that they've kind of made people like, it's hyper-normalized, you know, it's become just a thing that's going on and it's never stopped. There's plenty of people who are old enough to drink that don't remember 9-11. And the fact that people are being killed in these countries as this country tries to push them out, as other countries try to make sure that they can find no safety and no peace, we can't leave their country alone. Um, you know, I think we'll just see more stuff like this. This is the only thing you can do now, right? You have to kill them because other, where else are you going to put them? They're going to get killed somehow along the way. James Carey, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. All right. Sorry you got dark there, but thank you. <laughs> Folks, you've been listening to the Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened, and we look forward to talking with you all right here tomorrow on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out. 